Lester Brown used to say that if one had visited the planet three billion years ago, they would not have survived a minute because there was no oxygen to breathe. The water was filled with toxic minerals. There was no food. The planet was uninhabitable. It took three billion years of evolution of what we call the web of life to make the planet habitable. That web of life is systematically being destroyed by expanding human habitation and human farming. That threat is at least as great as the threat of climate change, but the two are interrelated. With regard to American family size, two statisticians at Oregon State University a few years ago did a calculation of carbon legacy based on family size decisions. Now, legacy is some projection over a few generations of carbon footprint of each generation based on family size of the first generation. They calculated that a reduction in an American family size by one child is a contribution to the health of the climate 5.7 times greater than all of the technological fixes one could make in their life from insulating the windows to insulating the house to solar panels to changing the light bulbs to driving an electric vehicle. The contribution to reducing carbon legacy of one less child is 5.7 times greater than that. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. No matter what you think we should do, if anything, everyone gets that there's some connection between population and sustainability. Everyone knows our population is increasing. We're consuming more than ever. How do we talk about this issue? I think most people shy away from it. I know I did until recently, feeling, what's the point in talking about something we can't do anything about? I saw problems with overpopulation, but the only cures I knew of seemed worse than a disease, things like the one-child policy with government getting in the bedroom and things like that. Today's guest, Bill Ryerson, has been working on these issues with tremendous effects, increasing prosperity, stability, freedom, and things everyone prefers think the opposite of the one-child policy. In this conversation, he shares what he does, his sources of inspiration, why what he does works, and how it started for him with Mexican soap operas. Actually, it started long before with action of the sort nearly everyone talks about today, passing laws, spreading information, facts. But that stuff doesn't work. It famously doesn't work just to give people information and hope that that will lead them to change their behavior. The Mexican soap opera started what worked for him, he explains this in the episode, and has around the globe for decades. I think by the end of it, you'll feel, as I do, that we should have more of this, more of what he does. Here's Bill Ryerson. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Bill Ryerson. Bill, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Nice to be with you, Josh. Glad to have you here. And I want to frame how this conversation starts because people who listen to my episodes a lot know that I I distinguish between what I call management and what I call leadership. And when I talk about management, I usually mean it's very important. Talking about sharing information, facts, figures, and very measurable things and things that when a manager is very successful, people comply. They do what needs to be done. And I contrast that with leadership. There's a lot of overlap. But when I talk about leadership, I talk about stories and images and working more with beliefs and things that aren't so tangible, not so easily measurable. And when a leader is effective, they will often inspire someone. I have a dream. Uh, Martin Luther King didn't say, I have a four-point plan. He said, I have a dream. And in the area of the environment, in the area of sustainability, uh, he did have a four-point plan. I mean, he did know what to do and he knew how to lead. And in the era of sustainability, I've been saying, I just have not found leadership. And there's a lot of management I think is very, very important. In no way do I want to take away from the science and education, things like that. And I was on the Norman Borlaug Wikipedia page and saw a link to the Population Media Center. And I thought, and which I'd never heard of before, although I'd heard of the Mexican telenovelas. And so I looked you guys up and I found, oh, this is, this is what I think is missing and what would work. And I contacted you guys and then spoke to you and found, I'm not going to try to describe it because I hope you can describe it better than I can, but I wanted to frame, this is where I'm coming from. And I wonder if we could reach to talk about 
PMC and you. Maybe you could fill us in on a bit about who you are and, and your background, if you haven't said that too many times to too many people, but I'd love to hear. Sure. I'm trained as an ecologist and evolutionary biologist. And so my motivation to get into this is sustainability. It was evident when I was a student doing graduate work at Yale back in the 1960s that humans were living unsustainably and expanding human numbers, among other things, uh, consumption as well, were driving many species to extinction. And as you may have seen in the 2019 report by the UN Environment Program, expanding human habitation and expanding human farming, both driven by population growth, are the major causes of the threat of extinction to 100 million species that we're facing now. So I got involved in this, like many academics, thinking, oh, well, this is important, so let's tell people what they need to know. And it took me most of the decade of the 70s to figure out telling people what they should know is not very effective. And when you look at many fields like public health, a lot of effort is spent on giving people information. And I have nothing against information, and certainly some people uh, act on information they're given. But as we can see with the current pandemic, there are plenty of people who do not. And in public health, generally, globally, information is notoriously ineffective at changing behavior. I also found that to be the case with inconvenient truth. It was very important information. But when many people finish watching that film, they go, oh, well, this, that's too bad. Now what will I do? But they have no idea coming out of watching that film what they can do other than maybe a few technical uh, adjustments like changing the light bulbs. So I found out about the work of Miguel Sabido, the telenovela producer you were talking about, in 1976. He was producing a telenovela and broadcasting it nationwide on Mexico's biggest network, Televisa, and it ran from 76 to 77, in which key characters, Marta and Jesus, struggling to keep their marriage together, were having discussions on all kinds of things related to family harmony. But one of the key ones was how many children they could afford to have and raise and provide for. And they already had two children when the show opened and Marta was afraid she was pregnant. Turned out she was not, but she separated their beds, which did not improve the family harmony. Jesus was uh, quite upset by this, uh, but she, she said to him, I don't want to have baby after baby. Look at all our friends who are falling into poverty and poor health because of so many children. So we have to find something we can do to avoid that. And at this point, Mexico had legalized contraception just three years earlier. So there was very little information about family planning methods. And Marta at some point found out about what we used to call the rhythm method, periodic abstinence. And, um, presented that to Jesus, and he played along with it until it came time to be disciplined. And then he got upset and walked out on her. And then she went to her wise aunt. And if you're writing a soap opera, there's always a role for a wise aunt. And she explained to Marta that there was something medical you could do, and she should take Jesus to see a doctor. So after some persuading, since neither of them were sick, Marta and Jesus Jesus agreed to Marta's pleas to go see a doctor, and he gave them a long lecture and sent them to a clinic, a Mexfam clinic. Mexfam is the Planned Parenthood affiliate of Mexico. And on primetime television, with 29% of the nation's viewers watching, the clinician informed them of all the different methods of family planning. They adopted a method and lived happily ever after. And when I first heard about this, I thought, well, so what? This is really silly because I'm not a viewer of soap operas. 
But in fact, in all of Latin America, that's the leading format. People go home at night. Back then, people were setting their VCRs to catch their favorite telenovela. So what I saw afterwards was astounding. There was an immediate 33% increase in clinic attendance, a 23% increase in the sale of contraceptives in pharmacies. Sabido also role modeled women serving as volunteer promoters of family planning because Mexfam was using volunteer promoters. And he ran a special number people could use to sign up. And 3,000 women called and signed up to be promoters. So that data was astounding to uh, those of us at the Population Institute where I was working at the time. And uh, the head of the communications division of the Institute persuaded the owner of Televisa that Sabido should do more such programs. And uh, he did so, a total of five programs dealing with family planning, teen pregnancy prevention, and related issues. And during the time those five shows were on the air, from the late 70s until the uh, mid-80s, Mexico achieved the most dramatic decline in fertility rate of any developing country in the 20th century up until that time, and was awarded the UN Population Prize in 1986 as a result. So it was an amazing accomplishment. And, and Sabido had not just made up this methodology, and by the way, he knew Norman Borlaug. Borlaug was doing his research outside of Mexico City. But Sabido went to Stanford University and interviewed Stanford psychologist Albert Bandura, who is a fascinating speaker and writer on how role models influence behavior and what makes a role model more or less influential. And Sabido incorporated various elements of Bandura's social learning theory into the design of his characters. And that plus various other psychological and communication theories became what we now call the Sabido methodology. So this is how it started. And when I saw this project underway in Mexico, I was quite motivated and got to know Sabido and have spent much of my career since then uh, focused on this methodology of storytelling for social change, because people aren't going home at night to listen to public health messages or to watch documentaries about the environment. They're going home at night to relax and be entertained. And yet they don't mind learning things as long as they're not bored in the process. So in fact, long running serialized dramas in which key characters designed to represent segments of the audience gradually and not in a straight line evolve into role models after sorting out conflicting advice from positive and negative characters is a very effective teaching tool and, in fact, far more effective than just information because people are largely motivated in their behaviors by wanting to be accepted, wanting to be normal. And so when they see a charismatic character adopting a new behavior, that suddenly becomes normal. And that perception that, in fact, the norm has changed it changed, is a key precursor to the norm actually changing. There's so much to unfold here. And I want to go over some simple basic stuff that you contrasted it, this, the Sabido method with giving people facts and information. There's another thing that, that has been used that I think a lot of people jump into, which is the one-child policy and legislation, uh, but really it's authority. And was the government involved with this, the Mexican government or any government? Uh, the government had legalized contraception and the Ministry of Health certainly was involved, but not in a major way. This was primarily, uh, the communications effort was primarily the work of Televisa. And, and in the case of Mexico, unlike the one-child policy you mentioned in China, it was all voluntary. There was no effort at coercion or even incentivizing small family norms. For decades, I would look at population and I thought my only connection was to the one-child policy. Yeah. And, you know, later I learned about eugenics and 
fascist programs and racist, sexist things. And I was like, if the cure is worse than the disease, I'll take the disease. Mm-hmm. I had no, you know, until I learned, I mean, I guess before you guys had heard of Machai Viravadya also in Thailand, who had a different technique, but it was fun and non-coercive. Yes. Machai was a great leader in Thailand for uh, normalizing condom use. He jokingly said one time his program of giving boxes of condoms to the police on the street corners of Bangkok was what he called his cops and rubbers program. Yeah. The fun. There's like a play that I've not met him. I haven't, I haven't been to the restaurants, but I feel like it's really fun. I feel like I'm going to go off topic here. A while ago, I had LASIK surgery on my eyes. So before that, I had to wear glasses all the time. And for a long time, I said, oh, great, now I'm 2020. But actually, glasses made me 2020. What LASIK got me wasn't 2020. I had that. What it got me was freedom from glasses. Mm-hmm. Contraception doesn't enable you to not have kids. Not having sex gives you not kids. Contraception gives you sex. <laughs> it yes. gives you playful, fun sex. Yes, allows you to adopt the principle that Sex is for recreation and not necessarily procreation. Yeah, or whatever you want it to be. Yeah. yeah. Learning and growing and discovering and intimacy and things like that. It doesn't create not having kids. It just makes it more fun. That's a distinction that for me, it took a little while to get. Anyway, so back to here. So uh, you could see his ideas, but just because something worked, I mean, maybe it was Mexico that made it work, or maybe the Stanford, you know, maybe that worked work only in theory. What Putting it into practice, were you the first one to bring it here? Were you alone? Were you with other people? At the time, the person who took the lead in this work back in the 70s was a man named David Poindexter. He was the Population Institute's head of communication. And I, at the time, was running the youth and student division back when I qualified to do that. And David actually went to Mexico during the broadcast of this Subito program called Acompáñame, Come With Me, and came back and reported to a staff meeting about it. And then he convinced various world leaders to write letters to Emilio Escarga, the owner of the network, congratulating him on this achievement and encouraging more such programs. And then He had done some work in Hollywood. He worked with Norman Lear on the vasectomy on All in the Family, on Maud's abortion. He worked with Mary Tyler Moore on the discussion about sexism in the workplace that occurred on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Uh, But when he discovered Sabito's work, he then focused his effort on promoting the concept of serialized melodramas, knowing that most people make behavioral decisions based in the part of the brain that is primarily dealing with emotion and spread that concept around the world. And I, uh, in the mid-80s, started working with him in a number of countries to help that happen. And then I started Population Media Center when David retired in 1998. And our work has continued since then, now in over 50 countries. We've reached over 500 million people. And the first application of the Speedo methodology in the United States was a show we created uh, called East Los High in East Los Angeles. It was a show that started in 2013. It was about the lives of teens in East LA. And it was really focused on the lives of the dance troupe at this fictional high school, East Los High and their love lives and their dance competitions and all of the things that teens deal with, particularly Latinx teens. And when we first created it, we expected it would end up on our website, but it was so well done by the director and head writer, Carlos Portugal, that after he had produced season one, eight networks wanted it. And we ended up choosing Hulu. And it played on Hulu for five years. It became Hulu's longest-running program. And um, it was the number one show among Latino viewers and in the top five among all viewers on Hulu during that time. And it was very influential in addressing things like teen pregnancy 
and also Domestic Violence Season 2. It was Hulu's number one show, and it focused on domestic violence at that time and solutions to escape from domestic violence. So it was a very important show. And for people who subscribe to Hulu, it's still on their site. It's no longer free to view. But if people are subscribers, they can watch all five seasons of East Los High. I'm reading a deep satisfaction on your part. Am I reading you right that this is rewarding work? It's very rewarding. I'll give you one of the reasons it's rewarding. In Ethiopia alone, we've received 40,000 letters by post from listeners to the nine serialized dramas we've done on Radio Ethiopia, not to mention text messages and other communications. One of those letters came from a woman in Oromia region of Ethiopia saying, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. Now, if you don't know what that is, Uh, It died out in Europe in the 1300s, but the concept is grab a schoolgirl and rape her and then claim her as your wife. So this is still now less and less a practice in rural parts of Ethiopia. So this woman wrote, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. Our own daughter was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result. And we've been afraid to send our 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wubalam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together. And we all agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we had not realized existed. And now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. Please keep your program on the air. So... When I saw that letter, I thought, this is worth all the work I've been doing to spread this concept around the world. So, yeah, there is a lot of satisfaction in it. There's also frustration. We need to do this in far more countries and address a whole array of issues related to the rights and status of women, because uh, violence against women in its various forms Uh, and suppression of women's rights to make their own decisions about reproductive health, among other things, is a critical human rights issue, as well as a health issue, as well as a global sustainability issue. So there's a lot of work to be done, but there is very clear, compelling evidence that so many people's lives have improved because of these programs. I mean, as you're saying it, it's, it's, I don't know how to put it, it's like mind-blowing and and heart rending that and that's one letter out of you said i think 40,000 and that's and that's of the people who sent the letters and there's that's nothing compared to the people who listened and didn't send letters because i don't send many letters right and that's just one country and this is a very poor country it costs the equivalent of buying two eggs for a domestic postage stamp in ethiopia so 40,000 people were so motivated by what they had heard on the radio they spent that money to send a letter to pmc's office in Addis Ababa so the the poultry industry must be mad at you. (laughs) 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 Yeah. One of the things that hit me is many people frame population and the choice to have kids as a personal choice and anything. Now I look at the government's put incredible efforts to raise that rate, but no one looks at that as, as government intervening, but not only is this not government intervening, but the issue of freedom, this is creating freedom. You know, I'm, I'm American. I've spent most of my life in America. I don't really think about what you were just talking about and child marriages. I can't see how that's any type of freedom at all. And you're changing that to make it more people having more ability to do with their lives what they want to do. Most of the coercion that has occurred has been to prevent people from using family planning. And certainly, in, in my opinion, governments have no business in trying to tell people how many children to have, whether it's to increase birth rates or to decrease birth rates. China, in fact, made most of their effort by engaging about a million volunteers to go door to door to talk to people about the benefits of small family norms and delaying childbearing until adulthood and spacing of childbearing. And so in the trips I've made to China, it's been very clear in urban and rural areas, people are very convinced of the benefits of small families and how that has been a major factor in China's economic success, what's called the demographic dividend. 
the imposition of coercion was, in my opinion, not only unnecessary, but disastrous. It was based on the assumption that without coercion, people wouldn't do what was in their own interest. And clearly, there are some areas like laws against murder and laws against speeding in your car and going through red lights where coercion is justified. But in the area of childbearing decisions and many other decisions, it's a formula for disaster. Uh, When Indira Gandhi tried it in India uh, in 1975, she lost the next election, and justifiably so, for imposing coercive sterilization on the Indian population. So, in fact, almost all of the success in the field of family planning and reduction of fertility rate to a sustainable level uh, has been through voluntary approaches, including communications to help people understand the benefits to them of avoiding child marriage, of limiting family size and spacing children for better child health uh, without ever telling people what to do. And in our programs, we never tell the audience what to do. Uh, These are locally written shows in local languages based on the policies of the host country. So we're not importing any kind of policy and just modeling behaviors in that cultural context and showing realistic consequences of the decisions made by the different characters. And then the audience, having learned from these characters, decides what they want to do and how they want to apply those lessons in their own lives. The way you describe it makes me think of when I was growing up, there'd be after-school specials, and it was clear there was a message that they were trying to get across. And what I'm hearing here is that it's not that. I felt like I was being lectured at. And I'm, I'm reading that this is not that. These, it sounds like the characters are fully developed, and, and there's, it sounds like there's a structure to it which also the webpage describes, your, your PMC's webpage describes. Yeah. But it sounds subtle and based on, I mean, based on life. I mean, the hero's journey is also a structure and that didn't make Star Wars any less interesting or any less something I could learn from. The primary goal is to have a compelling, entertaining program that attracts a large audience. Once you have a large audience, there's a lot of good you can do for that audience by modeling behaviors that are beneficial to the audience. So our approach is described as entertainment education with the entertainment first, because it's the key to attracting an audience. And it's the emotional content that is most motivating for the audience to adopt new behaviors. Yeah, this is like leadership talk to me in in my like MBA speak. It's like when the old name for the show is leadership in the environment. And I would always say leadership first, because if people don't enjoy it, if it's not something they want to do, then coercion, you know, you might get someone to comply here, but if you imply that they don't want to do it, if you imply that they wouldn't do it on their own, then you often reinforce the systemic beliefs that were driving the system in the first place, and you sustain what you're trying to stop. Many environmental organizations focus solely on policy and legal approaches, fines, et cetera, to enforcing environmental regulations. And certainly there's a role for policy with regard to the environment. But in terms of individual behavior, motivation through modeling sustainable livelihoods is far more powerful and can achieve much more. Yeah. One of the things that gets me is when I, whenever I see an article that says, here's one little thing, or here's 10 things you could do for the environment, when they focus on little, and when people, sometimes people listen to my show and they say, Josh, I love how you get people to do these little things so that once they do little, they can learn. I'm like, it's not little. It's that they want to do. It's meaningful. If, if I say a little thing, my usual way of saying it is like, no one ever says meatless. They say meatless Mondays. No one ever says drinkless driving Mondays. We know it's never to your benefit. You never ever, it's a never drink and drive. It's not like, let's ease into this one. Yeah. So when they say meatless Mondays, it's the implication which I think is more strong. The words may say, don't eat meat, but the, the subtext is, I know you want it. I want it too. The thing is we kind of have to do this. It sucks. It's horrible, but we got to do it this little bit. And the beliefs are what's driving the behavior. And that reinforces that belief. I gave up red meat, not because of its health effects, 
not because of its environmental effects, even though I was aware of both of those, but because of seeing a documentary about the lives of the animals in the meat industry. And when I saw that, I said, no, I can't support that industry. Speaking of, of images, I also just finished reading or looking at Over. Uh, is, is the title Over? It's Overdevelopment, Overpopulation, Overshoot. And this book, I just posted about it yesterday on my blog, is everyone can go there, right? It's, it's a publicly viewable images, but you can also buy the book. The book is not for sale. And although it may be now for sale, copies of it on Amazon, I'm not sure. But we actually gave copies of the book away to people who would use them to educate people about the environment using these images. And it turned out many teachers in schools used the book to teach ecology because young people who had never spent any time in wilderness or even the great outdoors learned from the photos, the very compelling photos in that book, much more than they would from text about uh, ecology, what the environment was all about. So, yeah, it's a very compelling set of photographs that people are uh, can look at on our website. And indeed, uh, many of those photos uh, can be utilized uh, without charge for teaching environmental concepts. And lest a listener think it's just for teachers and students, it's really, I mean, you can go through the book pretty quickly if you just want to look at the pictures. There's some essays, one of them you wrote, that are very meaningful, but also when People often ask me why I do what I do. Why do I avoid flying? Why do I avoid packaged food? And I can't put into words. I'm not going to try to put into words. The link will be on the page. So everyone go there and click and it's free. You can look at the pictures in this book and hopefully also read the essays. That is our world. That is our world. It's much more accessible and much more meaningful than all the graphs that I've ever seen. And I, I have a PhD in physics. I can read a graph pretty well and I can tell what it means better than I think the average person, but nowhere near as well as these pictures do. And, and the crazy thing is that from a perspective of aesthetic, color, composition, line, form, shape, they're stunningly beautiful. They're stunning, stunning photographs. When this idea was first proposed to me, my reaction was a coffee table book. Those things come and go and they don't accomplish much. But it sounded like a very different approach to a coffee table book. So. I said, fine. And I was totally wrong about them coming and going. This book has been reviewed by media around the world with a total readership and viewership of 1 billion people so far. Yeah. Well, I hope to add to that another million or however many listeners I have. (laughs) Not quite there yet. But it's really, I expect to keep coming back to it over and over. And it's, it really hits home. And Oh, yeah. Here's a question. With the the shows that you produce, it seems to me that Americans could use a dose of this. And with Americans, I think more, I mean, certainly we are growing the population. Uh, People are quick to point out that among American citizens, we're below replacement level. But our belief is that we need GDP growth. And we believe that GDP growth requires population growth. And so we import, you know, we've exported the baby making, but then we import the baby. So our population is growing. And on top of that, we consume like crazy. And I presume that these shows could address consumption as well. And now the U.S. has this a media market, which I, I doubt, I don't know the last time someone's gotten a 30% rating, but what about not just mainstream Americans? What about rich Americans? It's an important idea and one we aspire to do. But as you point out, the media market in the U.S. is fragmented and so many channels of information, it's hard to reach a significant percentage of the population, and it's very expensive. Having said that, it's worth doing because of the huge impact the U.S. population has on the environment because of their consumption. You mentioned the efforts by economists to stimulate population growth to actually make our economy even bigger. And really what is needed is a leveling off and reduction of our consumption levels because on a global level, human enterprise is living outside of what is sustainable. And it's only appropriate that people in Ethiopia and uh, Nepal and other countries 
increase their quality of life, but at the same time, trying to endlessly grow the economies of the United States and Europe is a really bad idea. I spoke at the Global Economic Symposium in Germany a few years ago. And at the time, and I think it's still the case, Germany was paying a bonus of $16,000 per German baby born. And this was a meeting of economists, and they had a session on climate change where they talked about changing light bulbs and driving a Prius and blah, blah, blah. And I stood up and I said, given the issue of climate change, the net growth of the world's population of 83 million people per year, or 225,000 a day, is dramatically worsening the climate situation because everybody, rich and poor, has a carbon footprint. And yet Germany is paying people in one of the most high-consuming countries to have babies. And indeed, if people are having babies in response to a $16,000 bribe, then you're reaching the worst motivated parents. Some people in Germany will have babies without being bribed to do so. But Germany really, and, and many other countries that do this, have no business doing this when we have a climate crisis, a water crisis, an energy crisis, a food crisis. And to try to motivate people in order to hopefully increase the economy is actually not working because as Germans have more babies, it increases what's called the dependency ratio, the number of children per working adult. It is the reduction of the dependency ratio that has led to economic improvement. So as countries among the Asian tigers, for example, have reduced their birth rates, going from six children per couple to two children per couple, for example, in a place like Thailand, uh, has allowed people to spend less on food, housing, and clothing and to have some money left over, which has gone into savings. And that capital formation on a national level has allowed for economic expansion, has allowed for businesses to borrow and grow. It's led to increased employment, increased in wages greater taxable income, ability of governments to tax that income and build schools and roads that add to economic productivity. And so the demographic dividend, as it has been called, is the major factor that we've seen in countries going from developing to developed status. But countries that, like the United States that have, and, and Western Europe that have very high consumption rates, need to focus more on equity, improving the lives of the very poor, and not trying to stimulate people to buy more houses and buy more cars and buy things they don't need because we're already living unsustainably. So the focus should be on improving the quality of the lives of people in developing countries, not motivating people in Germany and the United States to have more babies. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I think what drives people, certainly me, up until, you know, as long as I thought the cure was worse than the disease, I would argue for growth because, I mean, if I look back now, it was because I knew the result. I wasn't building up logically a conclusion. I knew what I wanted, where I wanted to get, and I was justifying it. Once that's gone, and I see now I associate family planning with like more fun and playful and, and free. And then it's so utterly obvious to, I mean, especially look at the pictures yesterday. It's just like, we're polluting the world and we're overpopulating the world. 
And the way to do that is to pollute less and to populate less. It's like blatantly obvious. It couldn't be simpler. And most people I know argue against that. They argue, but what I do doesn't matter. And someone else should do it some other time. And having gone through the change myself, to my ears now, that sounds like they want to they want to sit and watch TV instead of enjoying time with family. They're missing out on like the best stuff. It's so I'm getting to talk to you about this. It's like one of the first times I've gotten to explore and openly talk about population as could it be any more clear what's the state of the world and no. what's what's going on. And yet for most people, that's like they will cling on to that the most. Lester Brown used to say that if one had visited the planet three billion years ago, they would not have survived a minute because there was no oxygen to breathe. The water was filled with toxic minerals. There was no food. The planet was uninhabitable. And it took three billion years of evolution of what we call the web of life to make the planet habitable. And that web of life is systematically being destroyed by expanding human habitation and human farming. And that threat is at least as great as the threat of climate change, but the two are interrelated. With regard to American family size, two statisticians at Oregon State University a few years ago did a calculation of carbon legacy based on family size decisions. Now, legacy is some projection over a few generations of carbon footprint of each generation based on family size of the first generation. And they calculated that a reduction in an American family size by one child is a contribution to the health of the climate 5.7 times greater than all of the technological fixes one could make in their life from insulating the windows to insulating the house to panel solar panels to changing the light bulbs, to driving an electric vehicle. The contribution to carbon, to reducing carbon legacy of one less child is 5.7 times greater than that. So family size decisions in a context of high consumption like the U.S. are hugely important from a climate standpoint. Uh, globally, a guy named Brian O'Neill, a professor at University of Colorado, did a calculation of the role of family planning in reducing climate change. And basically what he did was look at what if we made a major effort to promote family planning information and services, and it led to a reduction in family size. And his calculation ended up finding that that would contribute about 25% of what is necessary to avoid catastrophic climate change. So family planning as a technology is far cheaper than windmills and solar panels, and yet it is never talked about at climate conferences. So even on a global level, family size decisions are critical with regard to uh, the climate. And I think the, the calculation I did, which is a lot less scientific than Brian O'Neill's, is the projected uh, two and a half billion people that will be added to the world population between now and 2050 is roughly the climate equivalent of adding two United States to the planet, even though most of that growth is occurring in low per capita emission countries. So population is very important in terms of sustainability. And from my view, sustainability, and I'm guessing by the title of your podcast, you would agree, sustainability is not only the most important environmental issue, it's the most important human rights issue and the most important public health issue. Because if we continue until the system collapses, the amount of suffering of our species, not to mention all the others, will be far greater than anything we can imagine. As you're saying this, I, I the... <laughs> we got to make one of these shows for economists. I think the one regulation I would impose coercively is that anybody who wants to go into the field of economics is required to take a course in ecology. Yeah, taught by an ecologist as opposed to an economist, because economists will say, oh, yeah, oh, 
Do you see this paper that came out recently on like, it just takes to task the assumptions that go into neoclassical economics where they they were seriously suggesting that remedies for climate change is to work indoors and t- turn the air conditioner on higher. I see. And saying that measuring the effects of climate change was they look at the economic output of Florida and they look at the economic output of North Dakota and they say, okay, they associate that with the temperature and they say, well, there's some loss if it gets hotter and, and or if the temperature changes, no conception. Uh, they're just like, oh, if the temperature changes, you know, nothing like a couple degrees and some beetle will wipe out huge swaths of forest that were fine for, you know, uncounted millennia. And they're just like, oh, well, it's just a difference between Florida and, and North Dakota. And that's all that happens. And they're not looking at what if, as a result of all of this human activity in a generation, you have to take a boat to get to the office because the city is underwater. So I think the hopeful field in economics is what's called ecological economics. And there are uh, now several schools of ecological economics, including one at the University of Vermont, that look at what economic system can lead us towards sustainability. And certainly we have some great examples. So Japan has a shrinking population and a strong economy. And some economists wring their hands over Japan's shrinking gross national product. But in fact, the product per capita is just fine. People are living well in Japan. It doesn't matter if the gross national product shrinks as long as people can live decent uh, lives. So in fact, we need to look at a whole new system for an economy that is sustainable. And that's really one of the biggest challenges we face. And, and I encourage you to interview some of the people involved in the work of sustainable economics because they're doing groundbreaking work on what is an approach to economics that will lead to sustainability while allowing people to have as decent a quality of life as possible. Yeah, and I think that the stuff that you are doing and talking about is, I think, one of the main ways there is to try, you know, to, to want to try. Because right now, I think it's just Anne Rand seems to be like one of the major influences on a lot of people who have a lot of influence. And I don't think she took many courses in ecology. You know, I, I talked about the process I wanted to walk you through, but we're now reaching about an hour. And I'm, I'd love to invite you back for another episode. would be delighted. Okay, then I won't feel we have to cover everything right here right now. It's too big a field to cover everything. Yeah, and, and I'm really, there's something about taking what works to an audience that is right now uh, innocent of it. And there's something about that that appeals to me of sometimes the things that are the most challenging are the most invigorating to work on. And surprisingly, maybe there'd be something that could really click there. Although I haven't really, I'm innocent of this as well. You'll be interested, I think, to know that in Rwanda, one of the programs we've done there not only was dramatically effective in motivating people to adopt family planning, but through a storyline dealing with a character involved in deforestation and then eventually changing his approach and reforesting the area, was cited by 11% of tree seedling buyers as the primary factor that caused them to buy tree seedlings. So this approach can be used across a whole array of environmental issues. Uh, We've also addressed bushmeat consumption in eastern Congo and had a huge effect working in partnership with the Jane Goodall Institute to reduce consumption of wild animals uh, in eastern Congo. So the methodology that that we talked about at the beginning of the show can be applied to many, many issues simultaneously. And multi-issue shows are more reflective of life than a single issue show. So we do multi-issue shows everywhere. And I want to add to that something that a lot of people think if you can't measure it, you've got to do measurable stuff, measurable stuff. Your goal is not to do specifically measurable things, but the results are still measurable. Yeah. I can tell you that in Sierra Leone, at family planning clinics, when people were asked why they had come, 50% of them named our program by name. Uh, We've seen in northern Nigeria, 67% of family planning adopters naming our program as the factor that brought them to any of 11 clinics that did this type of questionnaire. 
So they are measurable in terms of their impact, but we're not giving people data or training them in demographics in our programs. We're modeling life choices. Yeah, this to me is leadership, as a distinction between leadership and management. I think one without the other doesn't work as well for, you know, if you want to change culture, but both of them together, I think most people neglect leadership. What I'm calling leadership is, is stories and images and beliefs and iconography, and we neglect it at our peril. Yes. Well, I invite your listeners to take a look at our website, populationmedia.org. You can learn a lot about our work there. It's also possible, since we're a nonprofit charity, to support our work by going to that site. And I'll have all the links in the notes. Wonderful. So I'll have you back another time and we'll schedule that if that's okay with you after we uh, stop recording. Absolutely. I'd like to end with, is there anything I didn't think to ask worth bringing up or anything you want to say directly to listeners? Uh, I think we've, we've uh, done a good job of covering the waterfront on, on this one, uh, but I look forward to covering more next time. Well, Bill Rashen, thank you very much. Josh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. If you haven't paused this recording to read the book over, Click the link on my site and review it. You only have to see a few images to get the value, meaning, and understanding that seeing these images can create far beyond what you get in graphs and verbal descriptions of things. You could probably pick up how different conversations sound when unencumbered by misconceptions, sadly sponsored by what I call management without leadership at best and coercion or authoritarianism at worst. People often wonder why I'm so extreme in their view. It might look like extreme from a system with different values, But from the other system, the system that I've switched into, it's not extreme. Everyone experiences this difference in other areas. For example, in business, we generally value efficiency. Can we do this task faster? But nobody reading their children a story tries speed reading to try to get through the story faster. Because the point with your children isn't to finish the story as fast as possible, but to show and receive love in your family. You don't try to make that more efficient. You enjoy it more. When I let go of the beliefs driving population growth, and GDP growth as big values, I found that I could see they didn't create the health, longevity, and happiness that I thought. That was a preconceived notion of mine that I see all over the place. I got it from society. I hope that this episode and hearing from Bill helped loosen the grip of beliefs of mainstream culture on you listeners. I wish that I'd heard things like this decades before. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.